Let's pray together. Father, we've just read of how the Apostle Paul addressed the believers in Rome as those who had become obedient from the heart to the teaching to which they were entrusted. Lord, I pray that you would do that miracle among us. Make us people who don't, who don't need requirements and limitations and boundaries because we want to obey from the heart. Lord, make us people who love you and for whom our, our love for you is manifested in love for others. And then, Lord, make us those who love your law, who love to know what exactly the boundaries are and where exactly you would have us walk. Father, I pray that you would do this by pressing into our hearts the truth that the wage of sin, what we earn, what we get from our transgression is indeed death. But your free gift in Christ Jesus is eternal life. Lord, cause us to be so overwhelmed that you would freely give the gift of eternal life that we obey from the heart, that we regard ourselves as slaves of righteousness, as those who live to serve you. And Father, we pray that you would enable us to imitate you as dearly loved children. We pray that you'd be about the work of, of creating all this in us, Lord, as we look into this perfect law of liberty that you've given to us. And we pray that you would build us up in the faith by it and cause us to know you and rejoice in you with joy unspeakable and full of glory. In Christ's name, amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Exodus chapter 20, and we'll look at the last paragraph of Exodus 20 today and then the whole of Exodus 21. We saw last week uh, how when the Lord came down on Mount Sinai, he spoke the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. And I failed to, to mention, it was in my notes, but I failed to mention uh, an insight that was brought to my attention by my friend Sam Imadi, and that is that the, the Ten Commandments are arranged in an easily, rem easily remembered way if you just think uh, thoughts, words, deeds... Deeds, words, thoughts. That's the organization of the Ten Commandments. It starts with uh, having no other gods before the Lord. So, so, so the way we think about God, nobody is before him. And then it goes to our words. We're not to take the name of the Lord in vain. And then we move into deeds. We are to honor our father and mother. And then there are more deeds, uh, things that we're commanded not to do. Uh, no murder, no theft, no adultery. Uh, and then back to words. Um, uh, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then back to thoughts, not coveting our neighbor's house, not coveting our neighbor's wife. So if, if you just think thought, words, deeds, deeds, words, thoughts, there you've got a nice summary of the Ten Commandments. And what we're going to see this morning shows us this truth. 
what we worship determines how we live. What we worship determines how we live. Even in our culture today, where you might have people who think that they don't worship a particular God. Oh, but they are religious. And oh, but they do have things that they prize, things that they treasure, things that they live for. What we worship determines how we live. So we're going to see that in the logic of this passage as at the end of Exodus 20, it's, it's almost as though uh, Moses is going to start expositing the Ten Commandments for us. The Lord is, is revealing these things to Moses, and Moses is writing these th- things down for the good of Israel. And it's like we begin with an exposition of the first commandment, dealing with not worshiping other gods. And, 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 it, and what Moses does is he fleshes out what the altars are supposed to look like and how people are supposed to worship the Lord. And then flowing out of the worship of God, we're we're going to look in particular at the way that that the sabbatical years, this seven-year cycle, organizes the lives of the people of Israel. And then we'll we'll consider um, violence and murder in in really the second part of, of chapter 21. So as we look into this text, I, I really want several statements to be like, like umbrella statements that govern our thinking. The first of them is this, Romans 6.23. If, if you don't know this verse, I would urge you to commit this verse to memory. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And, and that's going to apply to all of these commandments. Anyone who transgressed these commandments, death is going to result. And we're going to see how, as we move through these commandments, um, there, there are, there are prescriptions for, for instance, if, if someone strikes his father or mother, dying he shall die. The death penalty is prescribed. So the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need to bear this in mind as we go through, even as we come to regulations for the building of altars, because what the Lord is doing is he's providing for the people of Israel to, to make atonement for their sins. They deserve to die because of those sins, but an altar is provided whereby they can offer up a a sacrifice in place of themselves, and then they can receive uh, forgiveness, and atonement can be made between themselves and God. So what I'm saying here is we need to bear in mind the gospel as we work through a passage like this. The gospel is what governs our response to a passage like this, because again, as we saw last week, The Lord is saying to Israel, I am the Lord your God, Exodus 20 verse 1, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And because I'm your God, and because I've liberated you, this is the way you're to live. And and this is the way it works for us too. So the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the first statement I want you to remember as we go through. The second one, Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. That's who we are. That's who God is calling his people to be. God is saying to the people of Israel, worship me. And here's what this looks like for you to worship me. I've given you these ten commandments. Now I'm going to exposit them for you, the Lord is saying through Moses. And and this is what it looks like. Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. Now it's, it's like the Lord says to his son at Mount Sinai, you're my child and this is what it looks like 
for you to imitate me, to live out my character in the eyes of the nations. Okay, one more, one more idea, and this time I don't have a, a Bible verse for you, but, but I've got just two phrases. God is giving provisions for sinners to be reconciled to himself, and then he's putting regulations on how they are to live. That's what, that's what we're going to see here. So let's look together at Exodus chapter 20, and we'll look first at verses 22 through 26, at this instruction regarding altars. And again, uh, I think I want to emphasize here that this is like an exposition of Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6, the, what I would regard as the first commandment. So verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Now again, the Lord is, what he's doing is he's establishing his identity. And he's establishing his overwhelming awesomeness in the sight of the people. He has come down on the mountain. The, the mountain quaked. The thunders they, 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 they rolled through the heavens, the lightnings flashed, there was the sound of the trumpet, there was the thick darkness, smoke going up from the mountain like the smoke of a kiln, and the Lord is saying, okay, you've seen that I myself have talked with you. That's, that's, where, that's the starting point, who he is. And this was prayed for earlier. This is, this is bringing back to the minds of the people that they're to fear him. They're to know that he is their God. So because he's dangerous, because he's holy, they are to be careful about the way, way they live. You yourselves have seen, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Verse 23, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. So again, I think this is saying, essentially, no other gods before me, don't make any images. And, and the reason I think he needs to say this to these people is because they live in a world where everybody's got images. Everybody's got a, some kind of a visible depiction of their invisible God. And, and it's like the Lord is reminding them, you are my image and likeness. You worship me. You don't worship something from the created order that depicts me to you. So he says, no idols. And then in verse 24, he tells them what they are to do. Verse 24. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And let's just, let me just comment for a moment about an altar and then we'll come back to this idea of an altar of earth when we get down into verse 25. So what are they going to do on an altar? They're going to offer up sacrifice. And this is the first place that we've gotten to in the book of Exodus where these sacrifices are prescribed. We, we read back in the book of Genesis that Abraham was building off altars where he was offering sacrifices. We read about Noah when he gets off the ark. He builds an altar and he offers a sacrifice. But here it's prescribed. You shall make an altar of earth to the Lord and sacrifice on it. Now, what the Lord is doing is providing for the people of Israel a way to have their sins covered. We're, we're going to learn as we go through the, the Bible, in particular in Hebrews, that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. And yet, and yet, there was a cleansing of the body. 
and, and, a, and a, a, a temporary remission, an atonement that was brought about through these prescribed sacrifices that enabled the people of Israel to, to dwell in the presence of God and made it so that his holiness did not break out against them and strike them down. So we start with who God is, and then we move to how are we reconciled to him. He is the one who spoke from Sinai, and they are reconciled to him through sacrifices. Now, obviously, we don't offer any sacrifices today because the sacrifices have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus and you're trying to get your arms around, your head around what exactly it is that Christians believe, what we want you to know is that the living God, the one who came down at Sinai, is the one that we worship. The God of the Old Testament is the God that we still worship, but we're able to be reconciled to him through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, where the record of debt that stood against us the, the, the transgressions that we have committed, that record of debt was nailed to the cross so that we could be reconciled to Christ. And we hope you'll embrace that message with us and follow him. Look at what the Lord promises there in verse 24 to Israel if they do this, which let me just note here. I don't think the altar here is the one altar that's going to be uh, built at the tabernacle and then later uh, set up at the temple. I think these, this is a provision of altars uh, to be set up wherever the Israelites are. And then as we continue through the Pentateuch, you know, we'll get to a place where they're, they're only to sacrifice in Jerusalem at the temple. Verse 24 continues, the Lord says, In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. I'm going to read those beautiful words again. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered. Notice how it's the Lord causing his name to be remembered. This is what, this is what I prayed for in, in the prayer before the sermon. That God would so work that we all remember his name. He causes his name to be remembered. And, and what's being spoken of here is a situation where the people of Israel, because they know God, they fear him because he's worked in their hearts and caused them to remember his name. And they know, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. So I've got to offer this sacrifice. And, and I pray that what would happen among us is that God would cause his name to be remembered so that we know I'm guilty. I need Jesus. And then we feel this amazed bewildered at God's mercy sense of relief and gratitude and joy that makes it so that we never want to complain about anything because we're reconciled to God. We never want to say anything negative to anybody because, because God saved us in Christ. That's what we need to happen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, the Lord says, I will come to you He's going to be physically, no, maybe not physically. I mean, how is he physically present anywhere? He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But he says, I will come to you. He's accommodating himself to our understanding, using this analogous language to speak of how he does somehow draw near. The, the omnipresent God says, I will come to you. So covenantally, he's going to be uniquely, specially present with his people. He says, I will come to you. And bless you. Where? Where they worship him. 
In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, where you build this altar, I'm going to come to you and bless you. Don't you want this? Don't you want to experience the presence of God? Don't, don't you want to experience the blessing of God in your life? I mean, this is why we love to come to church, isn't it? This is why I love to come to church. Because Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am with you. So it's a great thing to be with the people of God, to, to celebrate the gospel, and to sense his nearness, and to experience his blessing. Now, if we ask... What kind of blessing should Israel expect? I think that Moses has actually arranged his presentation, probably because this is the way the Lord gave it to him. I mean, this is presented as the Lord speaking to Moses there in verse 22. I think there's a concentric arrangement to this. And in the last unit of this section, over in chapter 23, starting in verse 18, I think, we return to this whole thing about worship. So verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. Give some instructions about, some more instructions about sacrifice. Uh, and look at, look at the prohibition again on idolatry in verse 24. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, the peoples of the land. And then verse 25, you shall serve the Lord your God. And then listen to this. He will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make your enemies turn their backs to you. And he just goes on talking about how he's going to bless them. How he's going to, to make his name great among them. So I think that that section, 23, 18, through the end of the chapter, really, I think that matches this first section on altars here at the end of chapter 20. Let me draw your attention. I, I didn't note this verse. Look at verse 22 of chapter 23. If you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. That's almighty God saying that. That's the blessing of God. So back to chapter 20, verse 24. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. That stuff that we just read over in chapter 23. Verse 25, I think, corresponds to uh, verse 23 about the uh, uh, not making gods of silver and gold. And also, I think it fills in the idea about an altar of earth. So verse 25 if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. Moses doesn't tell us the rationale of, of why it is that a tool would profane the stones. And so what we're left with having to do, we have to do biblical theology or Old Testament theology. We have to read all these texts and try to, try to put together a rationale or understand a rationale, why is it that a tool would profane a stone if, if the stone was shaped? And from other uh, passages, people make suggestions um, from things that are said elsewhere. So you know, one suggestion that I think is, is as likely as any other is the idea that a tool, the, the word used here for tool is actually the word sword. And a sword is an instrument of death. Uh, a, so a tool might be used 
um, to, to kill an animal, or it might have been used to kill a person in battle or something like that. And so if that tool had been used um, to, to kill an animal, the, the blood of that animal would have defiled the tool, and thereby the, the stones would be defiled. But I want to acknowledge that what I'm doing here is supplying information from other passages and, and then uh, trying to bring that to bear to understand why it is that, that a, 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 using a tool on a stone would profane them. Uh, finally, verse 26, he says, You shall not go up by steps on my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. And again, we're not told what's the problem with the exposure of nakedness, but we know, don't we, from Genesis 3, that after sin, nakedness is, is revealing of shame. And then we also know from the context of in, in which Israel lived, we know that there were uh, various rites and rituals that priests and, and religious people, not worshiping uh, the living God, but worshiping other gods, would have engaged in that would have involved um, inappropriate displays of their body parts. And, and these would have distracted from holiness. They would have uh, drawn attention to the priest. They would have defiled the conscience. And on and on we could go about how that would have been inappropriate. So I think there's, there's both a, a rationale arising out of Genesis 3 and a rationale from Israel's context on this prohibition of steps that might cause someone to be exposed. And again, I think these altars are altars where normal Israelites would worship because later in Exodus 28, um, instructions are going to be given ab about how the priests are to wear um, underpants so that they are not exposed when they go up on, on the altar. Okay, so the first commandment here is about the exclusive, exclusive worship of the Lord and the way that that results in his presence and blessing. So Israel is to worship God. And, and I would say to all of us, we are to worship this God. We move now in chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, to a section that could cause people some consternation in our culture. Because this section is on, it's on slaves. It's on slaves within the people of Israel. But, but I think we need to understand this text biblically, so, so in other words, the Bible needs to inform how we think about this, not so much culturally. So I would, I would plead with you that you not respond with a sense of indignation and moral outrage. I would plead with you that you recognize the past is a foreign country. The past is a different world. And this is even more important than what I just said. The Bible does not authorize people to sin. The Bible does not authorize people to sin, nor does it teach sin, okay? So with those ideas before us, actually before we start reading in Exodus 21, 1 through 11, I want to take you over to the book of Leviticus, and I want to read to you these statements from Leviticus 25. And I want to start in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 35. Because I think this really informs what's happening here. So Leviticus 25, 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner and he shall live with you. Okay, so this is an Israelite, a brother Israelite, who cannot sustain his own, his own life. And so 
you know, in, in our world, this would mean he's not making enough money to pay the light bill or to pay his rent. In that world, his, his fields are not producing, his flocks are not replicating themselves, he can't feed his family because either he's not a good farmer or he's, you know, not a good husbandsman with his, with his animals, whatever the case, he's poor, he can't sustain himself. Look at verse 39. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. So I want to propose to you that what we're reading about here in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 25 is kind of like the ancient Israelite version of a welfare program. In other words, they don't, they don't do what we do where they collect money from all the citizenry and then they just distribute money to people who can't sustain themselves. No, they set up an arrangement where if, if I'm a lousy farmer or a lousy, um, you know, shepherd and, and I can't feed my family, I can come to J.O. who's good at everything and his flocks are, are, are flourishing and his, his herds are multiplying and I can say to J.O., Hey, we've got this arrangement in, our, in, our, in Israel where I'm going to basically become a servant to you for the next however long it is until the, the sabbatical year. And hopefully, the deal is I'll learn from you how to be a good farmer and how to be a good shepherd. And then when the year of release comes, I get my freedom back and I go, I go back and I work my own land and I work my own animals. And hopefully, now this time, I can make a productive go of it. So let's start reading here in Exodus 21. These are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, and there's a footnote in the ESV that says, or servant, and I would just observe that this term servant is the same term used when Moses is described as the servant of the Lord. It's the same term used in, in Isaiah 52 and 53 to describe the suffering servant. So... Uh, and then in, in Leviticus 25, this distinction is drawn between a slave and, and, and a fellow Israelite. So let me just note here that this Hebrew slave is not somebody who's being compelled by others to serve this way. He's, he's really selling himself into a kind of indentured servitude. Second, this kind of slavery, if we want to call it that, is not based on skin color or ethnicity. All these people are Israelites. This is one Israelite becoming a servant or a slave to another Israelite. Third, as we're going to see right here, this is not permanent. This is going to go until the year of, of, of release, the sabbatical year. And then fourth, everything that's stated here is governed by the Ten Commandments. Everything that's stated here in Exodus 21, 1 through 11, and really the rest of the chapter, is governed by the Ten Commandments. So everybody's supposed to be worshiping the Lord. Everybody's supposed to be not taking his name in vain. Everybody's honoring father and mother, um, resting on the Sabbath, honoring the Sabbath day, keeping it holy. Everybody is recognizing we don't murder, we don't steal, we don't commit adultery, we don't covet. We, we, don't, we don't do those things. We don't bear false witness. Okay, so all this is governed by the Ten Commandments. And then look at the rest of verse 2 there. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. I think really what this is doing is, is fleshing out 
honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's like Moses is saying, hey, that, that, that thing about honoring the Sabbath and keep it holy, it doesn't just apply to your weekly uh, life. It applies to seven-year cycles of years. And, and on the seventh year, the, the, the Hebrew slaves are, are to be released for nothing. They're to, be, they're to be given back their freedom. And then there are regulations stated here. Verse 3, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. Verse 4, if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's and he shall go out alone. I think this provision actually relates to the next section in verses 7 through 11. We'll come back to some of these ideas when we get down there to those verses. But the idea is um, this master has made an investment in both of these servants and the female servant is particularly attached to his household, and he's responsible for her, and so she stays with the master. Now, if the guy wants to stay, he can stay. If he doesn't like the arrangement, if he doesn't like the, 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 the way this is going to go, then he just simply needs to say to the master, don't give me a wife. Don't give me a wife, because when year seven comes around, I'm out of here, and, and I don't want to leave behind a wife and children, so he can, he can simply either accept the terms or reject the terms. Uh, verse 5, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the do doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be a slave forever. And you might ask, what kind of situation would cause somebody to do that? Well, plainly, only the kind of situation where somebody's being treated really well, right? Where, where somebody recognizes, I've got it really good here. This master's really prosperous. I'm benefiting from his wisdom and his prosperity. I've got a better life here than I would have if I went and tried to do it on my own. So I want to stay within this household. That, I, that's the only situation I can imagine when somebody would willingly want to do that. So... Um, as, we, as we continue here, let me just note one other thing about that statement in verse 6. He shall be a slave forever. There, there's actually dispute among the, um, the, the rabbis about how to understand this. There are other provisions, like in Leviticus 25, about how in the year, year of Jubilee, so the 49th year, the seventh set of seven, uh, liberty is proclaimed throughout the land. And so there were some rabbis who said, well, it says forever, but it really just means until the year of Jubilee when all the slaves are released. And then there were others who also proposed that year, year of Jubilee release or the death of the master. That, that, so um, others, others think, nope, he's going to be part of that house forever. I, I'm, you know, I just put that out there for you to think about. I'm inclined to the view that they would be released in the, in either when the, the master died or in the year of Jubilee. So male slaves are treated in verses 1 through 6, and then female uh, slaves in verses 7 through 11. Now, we, we need to understand, again, the past is a foreign country. And we need to understand why would someone do this? Why would someone do what we're about to read about? And again, I just want to note, there's no Social Security Administration. There are no food stamps. You know, there's no government program whereby somebody's going to be able to feed their children in ancient Israel. There's, there are these kinds of provisions. And so, again, let's say that I'm not a good farmer, and I'm not a good um, shepherd, 
and I'm, and I'm not able to feed my family. And let's say, again, that the Osterlings are magnificent at all this stuff. Well, I could come to J.O. and I could say, I want to, I want to basically give you my daughter and you will take her into your household and you will treat her as a daughter and she will either become a wife to one of your sons or perhaps, 21, 1 to 6, a wife to one of the servants in your household who's going to stay and she'll be safe, she'll be protected, she'll be provided for and nothing, nothing evil or uh, wicked or, or awful will ever come about because you're such a wonderful person and you've got such a great household. That, that's a possibility. So I think that's the kind of situation that we're reading about here in verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. In other words, when the year of re release rolls around, she is not to go out from that household because she's attached to that household. Verse 8, if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself. So maybe there was a situation where uh, the, the master of the house decides that this is going to be his wife, perhaps when uh, his own wife dies, or maybe they're going to do a polygamous thing. If he's designated her for herself, then he shall let her be redeemed. This is if he doesn't um, decides she's not pleasing to him. Her own family can buy her back. And it continues there in verse 8, he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her, meaning he didn't keep the, the arrangement that was agreed upon. Verse 9, if he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as, a, as with a daughter. That, I think that's, that's the key statement in this whole passage. This girl who comes into this household is to be regarded by this new family as a daughter. Verse 10, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. So this is envisioning a scenario where the master um, takes this wife, this, this slave girl, as his wife, but then perhaps he takes another wife, and these three things are not to be denied in any, any woman in this situation. Um, she's not to be denied food, clothing, or marital rights. The marital rights thing is about uh, her having the opportunity to have a son who would then grow up and protect her and provide for her as the years pass. Verse 11, if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money, meaning uh, the deal has been uh, broken, the contract has been voided, and she is free to depart if she's not provided with food, clothing, and, and marital rights. So again, the past is a foreign country. This is not the world that we live in. We don't live in a world where polygamy is legal. And, and you know, I'm... I'm glad that we don't live in a world where polygamy is legal. Uh, we don't live in a world where slavery, or at least in this country. Now, I think there's probably plenty of slavery going on in this country. If we were to look into um, some things that are happening, particularly in the sex industry, I suspect there are people who are enslaved. In fact, I know there are. And uh, so, so we don't need to be uh, all high and mighty about how righteous we are as a culture. Um, um, but, but in terms of, of what we ordinarily think of with slavery, praise God, we don't live in a world like that. And, um, and then also, I think, praise God, we don't live in a world where uh, daughters in particular are sold into these kinds of arrangements. And, and I just want to say a word here about, about um, advocates of theonomy. 
You know, if you, if you read Advocates of Theonomy, they will say things like, we want the Old Testament to be applied in exacting detail. And, and I want to say again, no thanks. No thanks. I don't want to go back to a world like this. And I don't want to go back to a world where we're living under the Old Covenant, not the New Covenant. This is all part of the Old Covenant, which, in, in my view, it has been fulfilled and brought to an end and nullified by what the Lord Jesus accomplished. And he inaugurated a New Covenant, and he gave a law of Christ that regulates the lives of his people. So... Um, with, with all these considerations, we're going to have to stop here. I'm not going um, you know, to go until 12.30 and finish out the rest of chapter 21. We're, we'll have to come back. Um, with all these considerations, let me just make a couple of more uh, comments here. First, let me make a comment about slavery in the Bible. Um, I, would, I would urge you to recognize there was no slavery in the Garden of Eden, which means slavery was not part of the good creation that God built into the world. There was no slavery in the Garden of Eden. And then you go read Revelation 21 and 22, there is no slavery in the new heavens and new earth. So what's happening here is uh, a regulation, a boundary for the, the, the sadnesses of the fallen human condition. And in ancient Israel, I think that what's instituted here is actually intended to be good for people. So we, we should ask ourselves... What would it look like for ancient Israelites to love their neighbors as themselves as an expression of their love for God? That's, that's, what this is, that's the perspective that this is assuming. It's assuming that, to go back to my uh, repeated illustration here, that J.O., the prosperous farmer, is, is prospering under the blessing of God because he loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loves his neighbor and himself. And in that scenario, what would it look like for a poor neighbor to need help and to come to him and find the kind of relief that's provided for here and then be released to go be productive and, and um, make a way for himself in the year of release? Second, again, note how you got this worship of God and then this living out of the Ten Commandments. And what we've focused on particularly today is that commandment to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. So notice how their weeks and their years, their calendars, are being set by their knowledge of God, set by their worship of God. And I would encourage all of us to increasingly seek to adopt this kind of mindset. I live the way I live because of who God is and because of the way that I worship Him. And I think about time the way that I think about time, because of who God is. We, we need to get control of our calendars. We need to take our thoughts about our calendars and about the years of our lives captive to the knowledge of Christ. And, and we need to think about um, what we expect for future weeks, future months, future years, decades of our lives in terms of what does the Bible teach me? To look for? How does the Bible teach me to think about these things? We, we need to, to tear down the strongholds of our culture, as, as Denny preached recently from 2 Corinthians 10, particularly with how we think about the ages and seasons and, and the, the periods of our lives. We want to think biblically about these things. And then, lastly, I would encourage you to, to ask yourself the question. 
What does it look like to live out the Ten Commandments? What does it look like to live out the law? Because that's what Moses is teaching here. And, and you can notice, just in what we've covered here, it looks like worshiping the Lord in accordance with his prescriptions, right? So we're not allowed to come to the Lord and, and try to worship him in, a, in some way that we like, that we think's good, that we think might be... No, we want to go to the Bible and say, what does the Bible teach me about how I'm supposed to worship the Lord? And, and then we're surprised. I mean, you know, we don't build altars, but we're surprised by things like, if you use your tool on it, that will profane the altar. I think that when you first come to faith, you're surprised that you, you go to the New Testament and, and you find things like preach the word and, and you know, uh, sing, uh, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And, and you're surprised, oh, I'm not supposed to just say whatever I think would be clever or good. I'm supposed to actually uh, preach the scriptures and I'm supposed to actually... Uh, pray the scriptures and sing the scriptures and these kinds of things. I think this is revolutionary for our thinking about worship. And then um, this, this teaching, as we've seen about these, these years, you know, I think Micah really answers the question, what does it look like to live out the Ten Commandments? You, you know the text I'm, I'm, I'm probably thinking of, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you what is good and what he desires from you, that you should... Love, they, they render it love, mercy. Seek justice. But that word for mercy is, is uh, chesed. You should love the Lord's loving kindness. That you should seek justice and that you should walk humbly with your God. That's what he desires from us. To love mercy, to do justice, and to walk humbly with God. And, and what we're having here in these passages is spelling out for us what justice looks like. You live in accordance with the teaching of the scriptures. As we seek to um, bring our lives into conformity with the teaching of the scriptures, again, we want to ask the question, what does it look like to love our neighbors as ourselves as an expression of our love for God? And I would, I would, I would urge you to embrace the view. It looks like Romans 6. I'm going to embrace the teaching from the heart, and then I'm going to view myself not as a slave to sin, but as a slave to righteousness, somebody that wants to do what's right from the heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your word. We thank you that we can trust that it will never teach us to sin, that it will never authorize sin. And Lord, we thank you for, for the clear promise that in all the place where you cause your name to be remembered, you will come to us and bless us. Lord, we pray that you would come among us now and cause us to experience your blessing. Give us wisdom as we think about these passages. Keep us from misinterpretations and help us, Lord, to recognize how we need to order our days with a heart of wisdom that we might be pleasing to you. We ask all this in Christ's name.